We're going to jump into the Word now. We are continuing our series, getting back into our series in Luke, and we're at the next major section of Luke, which is the ministry of Jesus. So we just finished the introduction to the Luke-Acts book, and now John the Baptist comes on the scene to prepare the way for Jesus to begin his ministry. We've heard a lot about John and a lot about Jesus, but as children, now we get to experience them as adults. And we're going to be in this, the ministry of Jesus, until Luke chapter 9, verse 50, which then at that next part, the next part of Luke begins Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. And what we see here, the message of John lays the foundation for three important principles that we're going to see Jesus preaching and doing during his entire ministry. So we need to pay attention to the ministry of John and hear what he has to say to prepare for the people in, uh, for Jesus and his ministry that is about to happen. And so we're going to read a long passage from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Everybody should have it in your uh, service sheet. If you don't, you can go on your phone and check there. Um, but this is the story of John. This is what John the Baptist does. We've just spent so many weeks reading about John, the prophetic words about John. Now we get to see who John as an adult in his ministry becomes and what he does. And so I went online and listened to all of these names and places pronounced. And so if I don't get it right, forgive me. <laughs> I tried. All right. In the 15th year, in the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, and Trachonitis and Lysatius, tetrarch of Albany. During the high priesthood of Annas and Cyphus, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And here, Luke gives us a prophetic word about John from Isaiah, as is written in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, This has come true. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. This is John's ministry. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooks shall be made, become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. It's the end of the prophecy. Now we move on. He said, therefore, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him. This is his message. You brood of vipers, <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What a great question. And he answered them. Whoever has two tunics or two coats is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. 
Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So here we get an overview of John's ministry, his message, his sermon. He was the man in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. And he would preach, and as you can see from the sermon that Luke gives us, there was no holds bars. It was a classic old school Pentecostal sermon. Y'all going to hell if you do not repent today. And Herod didn't like that sermon, so John's ministry didn't last long because Herod decided that he was going to divorce his wife, marry somebody else, and person that he shouldn't have been marrying, John calls him out, and so what happens? John goes to prison. Ultimately, after being in prison, Herodias gets him beheaded and killed while he's in prison. But John does his duty of preparing the way of the Lord and how he prepares the way of the Lord is he teaches on three key things that we see become cornerstones of Jesus's preaching and Jesus's ministry that we're about to get into. Again, he's preparing the hearts. He's preparing Israel to receive their Messiah. And so this, this sermon that he gives is getting them ready to receive from Jesus what he is going to be preaching. So there's three ways that John prepares the people. First, he prepares them, Israel, by warning judgment is coming. And let's read a couple of verses here of the judgment that is coming. Verse 7, he says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee? So the people know something is coming, and some of them start trying to get out of there. And John is saying, Who let you know that judgment is coming, that you need to flee, that you need to get out of here? You brood of vipers, poisonous snakes. That's not a great um, thing to call somebody. I can't even like give you the equivalent because y'all would not let me preach the rest of my sermon today. In verse eight, he says, don't say to yourselves, Abraham is our father. I mean, he's just diss after diss after diss. What does this diss mean? This means that basically... Uh, what they were trying to do and trying to say is we can live however we want. We are God's children because Abraham is our father. Abraham, if Abraham's our father, God has to accept us. God has to love us. And what does he say? He says, John says, God can raise up from these rocks children of Abraham. He doesn't need you to be children of Abraham. I mean, what? These, 
literally in the temple, they had their lineage inscribed all the way back. Everybody knew who their parents were and their parents' parents all the way back to Abraham. They knew what tribe they were from. They knew what land inheritance they had. They knew every single person in their family. And John right here just chops that all down and says it is meaningless. God can raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. And he does that later on through us rocks, the Gentiles. In verse 9, he says, the axe is laid to the root, meaning Jesus is coming and he is going to chop down every piece of dead weight that has come and has grown up but has died, has withered away. Luke is preparing this message for Jesus, but also ultimately this understanding that the Gentiles are going to come in, that Israel, just because they have this status and this name, doesn't mean anything if they have not been obedient to the covenant of God that he had given them. That in the covenant, there were the blessings and the curses of the covenant and the curses were coming on them. And if the ax is being laid to the root, what does he say? That the bad trees are going to be thrown into the fire. That everything that is dead will be taken up. It will be thrown into the fire. And then in verse 17, he says, Jesus's winnowing fork is at hand. We learned about the winnowing fork when we went through Ruth, the threshing floor. And we see where do they, they get the weeds, they separate the weeds from the wheat. And what happens with the weeds, the chaff? They take that and they use it for fuel in the fire. They throw it into the fire to be burned. And John says, Jesus's winnowing fork is coming. And the wheat and the chaff are going to be separated. You can't sit in the pews on Sunday and pretend to be a Christian because Jesus' discerning eye will know the wheat from the chaff, the true son and daughter of God from the false son and daughter of God. And they will be separated. And when they are, the chaff will be thrown into the fire. See, Israel was not bearing fruit and keeping with the covenant. The time had come to pay the price. John was warning them that judgment was at hand. One of the things that Jesus brings when he comes to Israel is he comes every time Jesus shows up, we see in the scriptures, he brings judgment with him. And it is no different when Jesus comes incarnate on the earth. What does he do? He brings judgment upon Israel. And we're gonna see that over and over again in his ministry, that judgment is coming. See, Israel was not bearing fruit. They weren't keeping with the covenant and the promises that they, were, they weren't keeping their end of the covenant and the time had come. Jesus was here, the Messiah was coming and judgment for that was going to come. See, the church, we need to understand that just because judgment came for Israel, there is also judgment that comes for us, that is promised for us. Israel may have already received their judgment, but there will be a final judgment on the earth that all of us will partake in. We see this in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. It says, this is John the apostle, not the Baptist speaking. He says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, 
Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We see this fire theme. What happens when judgment comes? It is that fire, that judgment of God that happens. And so when we look at John's sermon, one thing that we have to ask ourselves as well as we read this is how do we prepare our hearts to receive Jesus? How do we receive Jesus into our lives and prepare our bodies, our temples to receive him, to live eternally with him in us? First is to understand that all of us will receive judgment, that none will escape the judgment of God no matter what we have done. I love how the picture in Revelation says that the sea will throw up the dead bodies. Death will throw up the dead bodies. Hades will throw up the dead bodies. All of these, no place can you escape from being judged on that last day, the day of judgment. And so we need to understand that none of us will escape judgment. If you want to read about this, I think the second half of James is great to read about this because it talks about how everything that we did in life, James specifically speaks to incredibly wealthy people who use their wealth to oppress other people. And he says, all the things that you have acquired, everything that you've done will be taken with you only for one reason, so that it can speak and witness against you on judgment day and oppress you just like you have used it to oppress other people. It's powerful, powerful stuff. We have to understand that we will not escape judgment. I know a lot of times we think that what we do in secret will stay in secret and that, well, you know, God understands if we start thinking about him, but we have to understand that everything will be made account, we will be made accountable for when we stand before God, that we cannot hide anything, that we cannot hide from God, and no matter when judgment day comes, all of us will eventually stand before Jesus to be judged. That is not something that any of us can escape. The second thing John preaches and does to prepare the way for Jesus is he does that by preaching repentance. In verse 3, it characterizes his baptism as a baptism of repentance. This is what John was doing. He would preach judgment, and then he would say, repent. In verse 8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He says, repent, turn away from your sin. Repentance sees the wrath of God, the judgment of God, looks at their life and realizes, I am owed the judgment of God. I am owed the wrath of God. And so repentance looks at what we have done, looks at the wrath of God, and turns away. It is literally a turning away from our sin, turning away from our old self, our old ways, and running towards God. Repentance is saying, I am no longer going to be this and do this. I am turning away from it. Repentance is not the act of confession alone. And sometimes we confuse confession and repentance. Confession is, I have done this wrong thing. Repentance is, I will no longer do it anymore. Confession is the first step to repentance. It is acknowledging the need for repentance. But repentance is the act. It is the legs that confession walks on that says, I will no longer do this again. 
I'm walking away from this. And so John preaches repentance. Turn away from sin. He says, bear fruit in accordance with repentance. That means don't just say you're not gonna do this anymore, but show me your actions speak louder than your words. Show me that you are truly repenting from what you are doing. Show me how you are gonna turn away, how you will walk away from this. And our lives... When we confess, right, in James, again, I'm, I'm loving James right now. James, when we confess our sins to one another, it says that we will be healed. And so when we confess, we believe God for his healing in our life. But we have to turn away from that sin to say, God, by the power of your spirit, I turn away. That's why I always pray and preach the filling of the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit, which is another theme in Luke, is because it is by the power of God, the grace of God, that not only can we confess, but we can also turn away from the things that have captivated us when we walked in the power of death and we were chained by the principalities of the world, then in those ways, willpower doesn't work. And many of us have seen this. We can have willpower till we're blue in the face, but it's just like sweeping dirt under a rug. It's still there, and one day I'm going to find it again. But the Holy Spirit is the dustpan. Comes in and says, yeah, let me get rid of that dirt for you. Let me throw it out so it doesn't exist in your home anymore. We need to pray for that Holy Spirit that when we come to him in confession, say, fill me with your spirit, Lord, so that I can have the power, the strength to turn away from these things that have captivated my heart, from these things that I have worshipped more than you, from these things that I have given the worthiness, the glory of my life over to. To repent, church, is to recognize what we have done is not saving us, is not helping us, is leading us, in fact, to death, the very place that we are trying to escape. And to turn to God and say, your ways are higher than mine. Your ways are better than mine. I may not want to do everything that you're calling me to do. I may not think that it's better to go yours, but what I'm saying, I turn away from my ways and I turn towards your ways. I repent, I look to you. The third thing that John preaches to prepare is by teaching obedience or good fruit. His sermon here, when he speaks of the wrath of God and judgment that is coming, and he's saying, repent, be baptized, the people, they come and they say, what, 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 what can we do? Right? He just told them they're all going to burn up and fire. And so the natural question from them is, what do we do? And so John teaches obedience. Just like when Jesus heals and he forgives and he says, go and sin no more. In verse 11, everyone comes to him, Luke says, and they say, what do we do? And, and John gives the love your neighbor. See, when we think of love, we think of like goosebumps and, and feelings and emotions and, and crying and hugs and kisses. No, that's not love. 
John teaches love your neighbor by share your goods, share your wealth, share your possessions. If you have two Jordans, give one away. I know. Oh, God. If you have 50 Jordans, which is more close to the truth, give 49 away. No, Lord. No. If you have extra food, give it away. How many non-food sharing people when we go to a restaurant we have? You, did you just take a fry? Yo, who gave you permission to steal a fry from my plate? <laughs> you know, it's so hard for us to comprehend this in America, which, God bless America, thank you for this world that we live in in abundance. But in a world where literally they only had two jackets, I shouldn't even say jacket, it was so hot over there, it was tunic, it was the thing that they went out with. Y'all, if you saw somebody wear the same shirt every single day, you would think like, yo, what's going on with that guy? Now, this is why I don't take pictures of myself during the week. Y'all would be very worried about me. (laughs) But imagine where they had two shirts. John says, give one away. If somebody nowadays only had two shirts... We'd be like, you better keep those shirts and wash them as much as you can. Don't be giving those shirts away. He says, give one away because you have more than enough. If you have food on your plate, give some away because you have more than enough. This is what love your neighbor means. This is what it means to respond to the gospel, to the good news, to live with good fruit and obedience to God, to look at those around us and say, how can I give of what I have? Luke later speaks about the widow who gave these two cents that she had in the offering bucket. And Jesus says she gave more than what everyone else gave because everyone else gave out of their abundance. That's having 50 Jordans and only giving one away. But this lady who only had one pair of Jordans, gave that one pair of Jordans away. And Jesus said, look, literally gave her last two cents into the offering. And he said, she gave more than every rich person gave. Every person gave, because you all gave out of what you have left over, out of your abundance, out of your excess, out of your discretionary budget. She gave sacrificially. This is what love is. Sacrificial giving. It is not a feeling, it is not goosebumps, it is not hugs and kisses. All those, those things are nice. But love has action put into place with it. To love our neighbors, to share what we have with each other. He says to the tax collectors who come, collect no more than you are supposed to. This was unfathomable back then. How do we collect no more? The whole point of being a tax collector was so that you can collect more than what you were supposed to. That was what the Roman Empire was built on. The tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were like meter maids. Nobody liked them. You scream at them every time you saw them. I'm sorry if anybody here is one of them. (laughs) The scum of the earth. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right? Just making money for the government. That's the only thing they were doing. 
But the tax collectors, they would take the extra money so that they can line their pockets, but they were, they were doing it from their own people. So the Jewish people would get the tax contracts and then oppress their own Jewish people so that they can make more money, and they would get vastly rich and wealthy off of it. And so John says something that blows their mind, take no more than you are supposed to. To the soldiers who come, now the soldiers, if you know anything about Roman history, you know one thing, ever since the time of the Caesars began, which has started about 50 years before this, you know that the soldiers always got pay increases and that's the only thing that kept the Roman Empire going because the soldiers always complained about how little money they got. So the soldiers did two things all the time. This was their life, to get more money. They said that they were going to mutiny unless they got a raise and they would get it. And they would extort the people, the lands that they were a part of to get more money. Meaning it was the mafia. They would go to this candy shop be like, oh, look at this candy shop. It's a nice candy shop. You know, this is a really nice looking. You wouldn't want anything bad to happen in this candy shop now, would you? Now, you know, if you don't want anything bad to happen in this candy shop, I think you're going to have to pay us so that we can protect you from something bad happening. And let's say the person wouldn't pay up the money to protect them from some bad happening. All of a sudden, bad things will start happening in the candy shop. This is how the mafia operated in New York City, in New Jersey, for a long time. They had their territory. This is how the soldiers would operate. They had their territory. They were like the mafia. They would extort people. That's how they made up for what they should, they felt like they were owed, how much they should make. And so John tells them, be content with your wages and do not extort. This is basically telling a soldier, don't be a soldier. In the world of soldiering, be content with your wages and do not extort. What's amazing is later on in Luke and Acts, we see all these things come to fruition. We look at Acts 2 and we see the church sharing everything that they have, all their possessions in Acts chapter 2, our favorite uh, portion of scripture in Zion where our values come from of community, discipleship, and prayer. It says that they had everything in common with one another and they shared all their goods with each other. This is the first part. We see Zacchaeus, that when Jesus comes and Zacchaeus on the tree, a tax collector hated by the people, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today. And he goes over to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus' response to the gospel as a tax collector, he gives back everyone that he extorted four times more than what he had taken from them. And he gives 50% of all of his wealth to the poor. Not a tithe, not 10%. Not what the Old Testament would have required, which is around double for people you stole from. He gives four times over in abundance more. And then we see the centurion in Acts where him and his entire family comes to Christ, the first Gentile family to become part of the church. And then from there, they begin to walk in the way of Jesus, walk out this fruit that John is talking about. All three of these things come to fruition in the scriptures and are beautiful and wonderful. But it got me thinking, how, how do we look at this scripture today? And what I think is what we need to do is ask, how do we prepare our hearts for Jesus every day? 
We need to identify, look at your field of work. Where do you work? And ask yourself, what is the sin of this field? The tax collector was taking more than they should. For the soldier, it was extorting and being discontent with their wages. For most people, as it was back then, it is today, it was hoarding material goods and keeping as much as you can. So ask, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a teacher, if you're a stay-at-home parent, right? What is it that is the sin of my fields? If you're whatever you are, as a business owner, for me, that's an easy one. It is putting profit above people and generosity. If you go to business school, there's one thing that you are taught. Cash is king, and profit is the most important bottom line. And you are taught no matter what it takes, as long as you get more profit, that is the most important thing. And if you read this whole understanding of capitalism where the corporations are responsible to the shareholders, why that is not a great system is because what are shareholders only concerned about with one thing, how much profit and money they make. That makes companies make poor short-term and long-term decisions. And so the sin of my field is to not treat and pay workers well so that I can have better profits in the end. And with my better profits, to spend it on myself and things that I like. And so a prayer of mine is something I have to constantly ask is how do I care for the people that work for my company well? And then at the end of every year, I look at my profits. And for the last 10 years, me and my wife, we have given away 50% of all of our profit that we have made. That has been our threshold. Why? Because that is what it is to live a godly life. That is what it looks like in scripture to love God and to love your neighbor. It's not lip service at a worship song. It's not an Instagram post about how much you've been doing your devotional. It is action. And we have to be intelligent Christians and look around us. Where do we work? Is it for the MTA? Are we a programmer? What do we do? What is it that everybody does in this field that is regarded as okay and generally fine, even though it goes against what I know God wants me to do. And sometimes it's hard to distinguish that because what has become part of the culture, it might be complaining. That is part of the, well, everybody does it. This is how we get through the day. But scripture says, do not complain. And so, how we look at the culture around us, we have to be intelligent Christians, look at the world, look at our jobs and say, all right, God, how have you called me to be salt and light in my work, salt and light in my family, salt and light to my neighbors, to my block? And that is how John teaches obedience to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. How has God called me to act differently? So then Luke concludes with verse 18. He says, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Now we may think what I, I think is great about how Luke, when we say the gospel, this is an overblown term that a lot of us don't understand what we mean when we say the gospel. So here's one of the first definitions that we get 
in the gospel of Luke of what the gospel is. Gospel literally means good news. And so when Luke says, so in many other exhortations, he preached good news or preached the gospel to the people. What is John preaching? How does Luke define the gospel? And we're gonna expand this understanding of the good news as we read through Luke. But what does he define it here? I would say we only define it as being able to repent, turn away, and receive life from God, but we forget the first half of this, which is Jesus is coming to judge. This is part of the gospel message, the good news. And you can't hang your hat on any lineage, on any special titles, on any degrees that you have. And so if you have been living a sinful life, you should be worried. Who warned you, you brood of vipers? And if you are, receive the good news that Jesus is coming in judgment right now and repent. And repent knowing that as long as I have breath in my lungs, there is time to repent and turn to Jesus. That he will receive us. That he will send his spirit and he will empower us to live out the good works that he prepared beforehand, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. That by his spirit, his grace, by his grace through faith, we are saved and we are saved. We can walk out these good works, these actions of love towards our neighbor and towards God by the power of the spirit. This is good news that today, yes, Jesus is coming in judgment. Yes, all of us deserve the threshing floor of chaff to be thrown into the fire. But yes, we can repent. Turn to God and receive his eternal freedom and life that he offers every day. John prepared the way for Jesus, and we can prepare a way for him in our lives. To understand our sinful nature and our need to repent, to actively turn away from sin and reject all of its offspring in our life, and to realize that Jesus... As John says, look to the one who is coming. He is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus is the only one that can save us from the wrath that was prepared beforehand and lead us into the good works that we would walk in them by the power of his spirit. Can we say amen to that, church? Stand with me as we pray. There may be some of you here that really never grasps the weight of the gospel of Jesus and what it means when he comes. Maybe we've only heard that when he comes, it comes with salvation, but we've forgotten that he also comes with judgment. The offer today, as John offered 2,000 years ago, is repent. Look to Jesus, the true Christ, the true Messiah because he is coming and only by him can we see salvation. Then there are those of us who have lived the life of Christianity so long. We forgot what it means to take inventory of our heart every day. To remind ourselves that every action that we have, we will be accountable before God for it. And only by his grace, love and mercy Will we not be separated and thrown into the fire? 
And so I ask myself every morning, how can I prepare my heart to receive you, Jesus, to receive your spirit, to receive what you have for me? So Father, we thank you today. We thank you that you are a just king and you will always make sure that there is judgment for what has happened on earth. And that is good news, that no one and nothing will get away with what has happened. We thank you that you offer repentance to turn away from our sin, even though we don't deserve it, and that is good news. And we thank you that you have come, and that only you are the Messiah, the Christ, that John said to look to, whose sandal strap he was not worthy of untying. And so we look to you today, Jesus, as our only source of salvation. And we say, save us. Send your Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While we worship at any moment, we'll have our prayer team off to the side. You can come at any time and receive prayer.